Okay, uh, here's what we're going to try to do. We'll, we'll go ahead. I think we will break for lunch at about 1.30, so we have about 40 to 45 minutes here to start into this uh, section in chapters 8 and 9. So again, so much rich stuff here, um, so I'm going to have to kind of keep us moving a bit, but I don't want to run past uh, very important principles. So my goal over the next couple of sessions is uh, we have a session now before lunch. We're going to have, I think, two pretty much after lunch. So my goal in these next two sessions is to kind of really get the framework of these two chapters and uh, start walking our way through them so that we're seeing principles about uh, giving. You know, when you think about the use of money, um, it is an area that is, uh, is so relevant, especially for you, you here in the African context. I mean, it's profoundly important in my own context. It tends to be uh, kind of at the fore in my context because of consumerism. Uh, people are caught up in money as power and the ability to gain things and all of that kind of thing. You have, and of course we have the health and wealth gospel stuff in, in the United States, uh, but, but the U.S. context and Canada, it's so big that you, know, you can be in large pockets of very healthy evangelical Christianity and not really be touched that much uh, in your churches by the health and wealth kind of stuff. I mean, there are, are charismatic churches that are very solid churches that deal with this more as some of you do. But it seems to me, from what I've understood from you, that here in the African context, it's a, it's a special problem. You know, there, there's really a challenge here with some of the false uh, teachings surrounding money. And yet it is a, a, a very important topic biblically, how we deal with the financial side of our lives um, about where we are um, in life financially directly relates to where we are spiritually. Um, and even, even for those of us who are not in kind of the orbit of the health and wealth kind of stuff, I think that we, we also have to constantly bring this before the Lord because for some of you, you're, you're in a situation of ministry that means that you are more challenged. Things are tight all the time financially in your church, and your personal life. It's an area that you can become bitter about if you're not careful because things are always a pressure. It's an area that you can uh, kind of get out of perspective and get out of whack. Uh, some of you may be in situations where it, you, because of your job, say you, you know, maybe you're not in the church or you're in a very large affluent church or whatever, you kind of have to keep the other side of it in perspective because things are just comfortable and easy you know, in, in your situation. Um, but it's, it's a vital area for us to really keep, you know, discerning, Lord, where I am I in my heart in terms of the way that I'm processing finances, either in terms of, of pressure and struggle or in terms of, of just them being so available. We're, we're going through major transition in life right now. In some ways, um, it's an interesting time because the cost of living is so much more in Vancouver than it was back in our, in our home place. We're coming from a place where you can live in a large, nice house on several acres of land for, you know, 250 or 300,000 U.S. dollars to a place where a little, small, moldy house that's 1,800 square feet and you wouldn't want to go in the basement is 1.5 to $2 million dollars. And so it's, it's just a different, it's just a, a completely different world, and, and I won't go into it. The Lord has provided amazingly for us to have a place to live that's near the school and, and has provided for us to be in that, 
you know, kind of situation. But the, the point is, it's a great opportunity, it's a great moment for us to kind of come up for air, so to speak, with where we are with life and budget and, and say, okay, how are our finances landing? How, how, what's our giving going to look like in terms of the ministries we're involved in, the, church, the direct church situation, all of that kind of stuff? How's this all going to play out now? So Pat and I actually, and I'm just saying this to you, hold me accountable on this, it's a, it's a really important time in life for us to, to kind of set aside some time and pray and say, okay, Lord, how are our finances to be allocated in terms of giving to the church and above that meeting the needs of other people and ministries and things like that because we've been in this massive transition in life. So uh, maybe where you are right now in your life or your church life or whatever is you've kind of been clicking along and uh, maybe had certain patterns and rhythms going on. Maybe this passage will be good for all of us to kind of come up for air in a sense and say, okay, let's think through these principles. How is this being embodied in the way that I, you know, am, am handling finances, how I'm thinking about finances, how finances are affecting me? Uh, are there some principles here that would speak to where I am in my relationship with, um, with finances at this point in life, rather than just kind of being on cruise control with whatever the habits of my life are at this point. All right, so we're going to take a look at this section. Let me kind of show you how the structure works out here in this latter part of 2 Corinthians. So we have the ministry of giving that we're going to be looking at in this section. It actually flows in three steps. There's kind of a three-step development of this part of the book, and you can look at your outline that you have there. I have those three steps in your outline on page two of your handout. So you have Paul's exhortation to finish the collection in chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. He's just, you know, he, he's gotten them back on board in chapter, uh, in the earlier chapters, and with the sorrowful letter, and we saw, you know, the kind of them coming back under his influence uh, as he talks about it in chapter 7, now he is turning to the direct um, addressing of this need for them to follow through with what they've committed to already. Uh, he says that last year they committed to being involved in the collection, and now Paul is um, going to give them a very direct exhortation, and we're going to see how he does that in chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Then you have Titus's mission in 8, 16 through 9, 5, Titus's mission. And Titus's mission to Corinth is basically Paul explaining uh, why he felt the need to not only send Titus back. So remember, Titus has been there. Titus has delivered the sorrowful letter. Now he's brought the report back to Paul in Macedonia. And now he's sending Titus and two other guys on ahead back to Corinth, and instead of coming immediately himself, he's setting, sending these guys, and he explains to them in this passage, I'm doing this so that you can get ready for me coming and the other leaders that are going to come with me from Macedonia. Um, I'm kind of laying the groundwork for you. You know, when we show up, I want to be able to show up and us all celebrate the moment. And if, if, if I was to, you know, come on now and show up and you didn't have any of the collection ready, it would embarrass me, it would embarrass you, embarrass the guys who are with us, you know, these, these leaders from Macedonia. And so Paul says, strategically, I'm sending Titus back to you and a couple of these other guys so that they can help you get ready so that then when we come 
and arrive in Corinth, things are ready to go. Because remember, Paul gets back to Corinth. He writes Romans. Uh, he's only going to spend about three months there, and then he's going to head on to Judea. So, so in essence, what Paul is anticipating is he's not going to have time to show up in Corinth and help, you know, have them at that point kind of get with the program and, and all that. So he's, he's strategically kind of preparing them, helping them to go ahead and move on the process so that when he shows up, he can move on with the mission to Judea and take the collection to Judea. All right, and then the final movement of this section in 9, 6 through 15, you have reflections on resources for and the results of giving. So he's going to turn to biblical theology in which he's going to point to God as the ultimate giver. And he's going to say that really where this, all this money comes from anyway is from God. And it says we're faithful to him. God meets our needs. He's going to meet your needs as you're faithful to him. And it's going to have real productivity in ministry. You know, as we're all uh, responding to God and seeing him as the ultimate giver, then what this is going to do is it's going to issue forth in a lot of people giving thanks and praise to God because of, you know, the giving that is, has taken place in, in the situation. Now, um, there's some interesting dynamics here in the, in the Greco-Roman world in terms of giving and receiving and, and that kind of thing. And so part of what's going to be in the background a little bit on all of this is Paul being very sensitive to the Greco-Roman conventions about how money is handled and, and you know, if you gave to somebody and then, you know, uh, they, they were supposed to reciprocate and that kind of thing. I'm dealing with this right now in Philippians chapter 4 as well. It's uh, something that's going on there in his relationship with the Philippians. In fact, he says to the Philippians in chapter 4 of, of Philippians that... Uh, you know, it's, it's not, he's thanking them really for the support of his ministry because at this point he has uh, received support for his mission while he's there imprisoned in Rome. And he, he says to them, but this is not like a normal cultural situation where you've given money to me and therefore you're like my patron, now I'm obligated to you. He said the re reality is God is patron to all of us. <laughs> and the money that you have sent me is really from him, and it's like, you know, you're his people, I'm his person, and God is using these financial resources to meet the need to advance his cause and his kingdom in the world, and we're just all trying to respond the way that God would want us to in the situation, whether it's through giving or receiving or whatever. So he shifts the attention to God as the ultimate benefactor, which is really interesting, uh, but it's an important theological point, okay? All right, so... Here's, uh, here's what we're going to take a look at, and then that final section that we're going to turn to, uh, maybe start into a little bit today, I'm not sure, we'll see, and then get back to uh, tomorrow is that confrontation of these false teachers. So what we're, what we're finding here, uh, first of all, is Paul's exhortation to finish the collection in uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. And again, I apologize that we're not going to be able to go into to tremendous detail, but we will be able to work our way through uh, a good bit here. So let's take a look at this passage and, uh, and see what's going on here, and I'll try to be wise about keeping us, keeping us moving here. Uh, look at um, chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. 
Now, we want you to be aware, brothers and sisters, of God's grace that has been given in connection with the Macedonian churches, that during a severe test involving affliction, their effusive joy and extreme poverty spilled over in extravagant generosity. I can confirm this. They voluntarily gave, according to their resources, even beyond their resources, begging us most emphatically for the privilege of being able to join in this ministry to God's people. In confounding our expectations, they gave themselves preeminently to the Lord and also to us by God's will. Okay, let's, let's look at that much of the passage here just for a moment and see if we can make some sense of what Paul is doing here. We're going to kind of continue on through verse 15 in just a minute, but let's, let's push the pause button there and see what we can see in the passage to this point. Uh, the first seven verses, really, we, we've gone through um, verse 5 here, but really all of the first seven verses are dealing with the example of the Macedonians. So what he's doing is he's turning to um, the Corinthians and, he, and, and in starting out his challenge to them to get involved in giving, he is kind of weaving this whole first seven verses together by talking about how the Macedonians had handled the situation of giving. Now, one thing that is very significant about this is the, the Macedonians, the Philippians, would not have been anywhere near where the Corinthians were financially and in terms of wealth. Philippi at this point was a smaller community. Uh, it was not, it was on a main Roman road that was going from east to west, but it was really in some ways off the beaten path. It wasn't one of the main commercial centers of the world at that time. Um, so Paul is addressing the Corinthians who are in the midst of a wealthy context, a booming situation. They, they would have been the happening place. Like today, if you go to Nashville, Tennessee, uh, you know, we moved from Jackson, Tennessee. If you go to Nashville, Nashville is the big, booming, growing, thriving city in Tennessee at this point. I mean, it's amazing the growth and the development that, had taken, that has been taking place in that city. It, it has a down, you know, inner city kind of area that's being transformed as young professionals are coming in, buying houses and renovating them, and doing all this kind of stuff. And Corinth was more like that. You know, the signs of wealth and development were everywhere uh, in Corinth at this point, not so in Philippi. So what Paul is doing is he's using the Philippians and their joy in participating in his mission and the way that they have given out of their poverty, he says, as an example to the Corinthians. And so his purpose here is to encourage the Corinthians to get with the collection. The process he uses in these seven verses is to lay a foundation for this exhortation by giving the positive example of the Macedonians and then by affirmation of what the Corinthians were already doing well. And we're going to see that in the following verses. 
So he's going to lift up the Macedonians and say, think about what these guys are doing, the, the wonderful thing that they're doing. And then he's going to turn and affirm what the Corinthians have already been doing. So let me talk about a few things here in the text. He says, we want you to be aware of the grace of God that's being manifested among the Macedonians. This word grace here, charis, charis, is a word that is used uh, throughout these two chapters, and it's used in five different ways. That word, I think I said this earlier in the week, that word could refer to attractiveness. We tend to to translate it simply with the sense of grace, you know, for by grace you have been saved, that's the word. But it can also mean attractiveness, winsomeness, thanks, thankfulness. Chorus can be used to mean a gift that was given, uh, the virtue of generosity or help. And in these two chapters, it is used in a number of these ways in terms of thanks, a gift, benefit, and with this sense of grace. This word occurs about 156 times in the New Testament. So it's a word that's used all over the place, and it does have what we call a semantic range, a range of meaning that, that is kind of varied. Uh, so it, it can be used of a number of different things. Here in this section of 2 Corinthians, it means specifically God's kindness or favor, his enablement of something, chorus in the sense of grace, that God is gracious to us in enabling us to do things, God's favor on us. It's used in chapter 8, verse 4, in just a minute, of the privilege of participating in the collection you know, so God's favor is expressed by them being able to be involved in the mission. So God's favor in that sense, it's used as a gift of the collection itself in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7 and 19. So in other words, the gift that they gave, the financial bit that the Macedonians gave, he says, was a grace. It was a gift that they were able to give for the participation in this ministry so that's another um, meaning of the word at this point. And it, it also is used of verbal thanks, just, just saying thank you to somebody. Um, it's like saying grace at a meal, you know, the way that we talk about that, that it's, it's saying thanks, Lord, for this food. You know, so, so do you see that the word is, is quite a varied um, word in these, in these two chapters? So he says, in connection with the Macedonian churches, the churches that were in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, those, those churches that Paul has planted, um, he is, is saying that great, the grace of God was manifested through the way that they participated in giving. Now, the way that he describes their moment is striking here. He says, look at verse 2. He says, during a severe test involving affliction, their effusive joy and extreme poverty spilled over in extravagant generosity. Now, what that means is that they were not giving out of surplus that they had around because things were going so well in Philippi. And what he's so impressed with was one, one principle of giving here is that it was a costly form of giving. 
It was giving out, not out of, of wealth and surplus, but out in some way of restriction and poverty. And, and he said the amazing thing about the, the Macedonians is you would look at them and their church and say, hey, those guys aren't going to be able to come up with anything because they're just in a difficult time financially. They're in a difficult place economically. And yet, he says, the amazing thing about the Macedonians is they gave at a time of stress and out of their poverty, and it issued in, it spilled over into extravagant generosity. And it's kind of, you think of the woman at the well, not the woman at the well, but the woman who was at the temple who had the, you know, the, the, uh, the very small bit and she puts that in, and Jesus stops the whole thing that's going on. Outside the temple, they had these trumpet-shaped kind of receptacles that people would come, and they would put their money in, and, and there were people who were wealthy who would come, and they would take their little bag of money and see if everybody was watching and put their money in. And all of a sudden, this little impoverished woman comes up with these, these bits and, and puts them in, and everybody else is just looking past her to the rich guys. And Jesus says, oh, stop the show. Let me talk about this one. Look what she just did. Because all these people gave out of their wealth. She gave out of her poverty. That's really all she had to live on. <laughs> and so Jesus celebrates that because she is giving. Ex that's extravagant giving, not in the amount, but in the significance of what she is giving. And, and it's similar to what Paul is saying here, and boy, I need to, I, I come back and I, I look at my own heart and I think, okay, so with where we are right now, are we simply giving out of what is just simply comfortable to give, or is it, is it stretching in a way that is, is, it could be considered extravagant generosity? And um, he says in verse 3, I can confirm this, they voluntarily gave according to their resources. In other words, it wasn't by compulsion the Macedonians didn't give because Paul wrote to them and said, look, guys, I'm expecting X amount of money from you. I'm your apostle. If you're not giving this much, you're not, you're not doing what you need to do. No, he said they gave voluntarily. They gave voluntarily. This was, this was initiated by themselves. They gave voluntarily according to their resources, even beyond their resources, so in other words, the pattern that he sees in their giving is, you know, it's in line with who they were and what they had to give and that kind of thing, but it was beyond that. So, you know, he's, the standards that he's setting here is he's not saying to the Macedonians, okay, guys, look, this other church over here, they're giving $50,000, you know, in whatever the, the monetary value is, a denarii or whatever, uh, and, and therefore, you've got to come up to that standard that comes, you know, he says, look, with the pattern of who they are and their economy and all that kind of stuff, they were giving according to their resources. In other words, there was a rhythm here in some way that was very much in line with their financial and resource situation. But he says the amazing thing was they pushed beyond that. What would normally be expected as, as, as good giving, they kind of pushed beyond that in their situation so that their poverty actually manifested by God's grace in, uh, in elaborate kind of giving. And in fact, look what they did in verse 4, begging us most emphatically for the privilege of being able to join this ministry of God's people. So it was not a compulsive thing where Paul is from the outside saying to them, you've got to come on. It's, it's the other way around. 
They're trying to, they're compelling Paul. They're saying, come on, Paul, tell us, how can we help here? How can we, don't you long for this kind of giving in your ministries? You know, where people are coming to you and say, hey, what do we need here? How can we be involved? What can we do to support? And, and listen, when things are, 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 are where they need to be spiritually, don't we have a lot of joy in giving and even giving elaborately in ministries that we really believe in? I mean, it's not a compulsion thing. It's a, it's a joyful thing because we're having the opportunity to support the work of God. And that's where our heart is, and, and it's a good thing. So that's what's happening with the um, Macedonians here is they are in a place that they are begging Paul and say, hey, how can we be involved here? They gave to the Lord and also to us. They gave them, and look at verse 5, it says, and confounding our expectations. In other words, Paul says, this was completely counterintuitive what they did next. We, we didn't have these expectations. They gave themselves preeminently to the Lord and also to us by God's will. So he says, beyond all of their just financial giving, they use this giving moment as an opportunity to come to bow before Christ and say, Christ, how does your lordship need to be manifested in my life at this point? I bow before you as Lord. And therefore, since I'm bowing before you, you as Lord, I also am going to work with Paul's ministry, which is under your lordship. A lot, of, a lot of times the battle is not about money. The battle is about the heart and the condition of the heart before God and his lordship. I was talking to one of the sisters uh, a bit ago, and, and we were talking about a very difficult situation in terms of, you know, um, someone who is dealing with, with sexual struggle and, and all of this kind of thing. And they're wanting to make it an issue of, well, these are my sexual desires or you know, whatever. And what it boils down to, the first question is, am I fully, completely submitted to the Lordship of Christ where I say, I will do what Christ wants me to do no matter what? And that's why I said that, you know, in, in a marriage situation, the beginning place has to get back to that, that uh, rock-solid foundation where you are in a marriage relationship with somebody else that both of you, as messed up as you are and flawed as you are and inequitable as you are, both of you are in a place where you bow before Jesus and say, Jesus, you are Lord, and we may be confused and messed up here, but we are going to figure out what you want in this situation, and we will say yes. Yes, Lord. There's a, a wonderful story that um, is from a U.S. context, and this guy had, had, you know, this back in an era when you had more, sec, you know, where churches were tended to be black or white and that kind of thing. And this guy was, God was moving him, and he was trying to get involved with the other parts of the body of Christ. So he went to this, uh, to this black church. And I, I just confess to you, I love the cultural context of black churches. I love black, black preaching is my favorite kind of pre preaching. And I'm talking about American Black preaching that is exegetically oriented and theologically sound, it is also rhetorically powerful. Rhetorically powerful. I was sharing with somebody that S.M. Lockridge was a great um, pastor, a pasta, as you would say here. Uh, he was, but he was a great speaker. He was one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. He preached in the White House. And I can still remember when he came and spoke at my university when I was in, in university and uh, he was preaching about the Lordship of Christ. This was about 1980, 
Uh, gosh, this was about 1978 or so. And I remember him, I still remember his words. He was preaching about Jesus being Lord, and he was talking about him being Lord of creation. And he said, he took the hammer of his power and smote the anvil of his omnipotence, and the sparks flew under the heavens and created the stars. He grabbed him a handful of nothing, made something out of nothing, hung it on nothing, and told it to stay there, and the world was formed. Man, I wish I could preach like that. I'm serious. And I do not have that rhetorical power. I, you know, uh, I've been to a conference before where I'm asked to speak, and the other brothers are from that tradition, and I just feel like an idiot when I stand up to speak. I do, because they are, they are so wonderfully powerful. But there was a church where this guy had gone, and he sat down, and the pastor came to, to the piano and started playing the piano, and and, uh, you know, everybody else was just sitting. So this guy's sitting, you know, there in the congregation looking around. And the pastor starts playing the piano, and he just starts saying, yes, Lord. Yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. And after a while, a lady in the congregation started joining. Yes, Lord. Yes. Yes. And more, more and more people in the congregation started, yes, Lord. Yes. Till it just was a crescendo of yes, Lord. Then everything got very, very quiet. And the pastor said, Lord, we've told you our answer. Now show us what it is you want us to do. And, you know, that's, that's a great, great place to be spiritually, is when we come and we say to, to the Lord, Lord, your lordship means that my presupposition is that I will say yes to you. If something is biblical, if it's theological, I will say yes to you. And I trust, Lord, that you will make clear what we are supposed to do. And so, and so then we come. So what the Philippians and the Thessalonians and, and those guys had done is they had, they had come to a place. They were so committed to Christ and so committed to the mission that they came and they bowed before Christ and they submitted themselves to the need in the situation. And they said, yes, Lord, yes, we, we will give to this need. And, and Paul says they did so sacrificially, they did so willingly, and, they, and, and the foundation was that they, they, they weren't just giving their money, they were giving of themselves to be committed to the mission, right? Um, and, and so again, it's a good, a good point for all of us to, to stop and think. Um, foundationally, as we are leading our people to giving, is, is it behind that that we are first teaching them how to live under the Lordship of Christ and helping them to make the right kind of decisions and that kind of thing. So he says, um, as a result of this, um, in verse 6, we encouraged Titus that since he started work on this gracious gift, he should be the one to bring it to completion among you also. So he uses the example of the Macedonians... And, and what God had worked in them and the elaborate manifestation of God's grace, which that's what he's taking the giving as, is this is manifesting the grace of God. This is a real work of God among them. Paul said what this prompted us to do is to send Titus back to you to kind of re-engage this conversation about you needing to get, get on with the gift. All right? So rhetorically, he's using the positive example of the Macedonians to motivate the Corinthians 
to get on with the program. And, and this is, you know, this is a rhetorical strategy that we can use with people. We can say, here are examples of how God has given elaborately. Like, for instance, earlier when I was talking to you about the Chinese believers, I mean, I, one, of the, one of the gifts to me in being involved with that ministry there is it's so challenging to me just what they, what they are willing to do in the cause of Christ and for the ministry and that kind of thing. In my context, is not their context, but it's applicable as I, as I go back and I say to my students or I say, say to our church, look, we have brothers and sisters in Western China who, who for a whole month will live on what you and I spend when we go out for, for a nice meal with our family in one meal. So, so that's, that's appropriate. That's not manipulation. That's saying, look at the grace of God manifested in these people over here. How does that grace need to translate over into our situation? <clears throat> so Paul says, um, you know, this is the positive example, and this is why we have sent Titus to you. Now, read with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read on through this section, down through verse 15. Um, and, and then I want us to take just a minute and identify some of the principles that we've seen here already. And we're going to come around and kind of give a grocery list of the, of the principles here in just a minute. But look at verse 7 through 15. Now then, just as you excel in all kinds of ways, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and with the highest degree of enthusiasm, and in the love we inspired among you, excel also in this gracious gift. So he's saying, look, how you guys excel in all kinds of ways spiritually already, allow your giving to be another example of how you excel in your spiritual lives. Uh, have your finances line up with the spiritual dynamics that are already there and apparent among you. And then notice how he says it to them in verse 8. I'm not ordering you to do this. I'm not commanding you to get with the program. Rather, Using the enthusiasm of others as an example, I'm seeking to verify the genuineness of your own love as well. So in other words, he said, look, um, Corinthians, I'm not commanding you to write out a check with a certain amount, but using the Macedonians as an example, I'm saying manifest the love that you have for Christ. Manifest the, the love that you have for the mission of God by following through with this and getting, getting with the program in terms of what you already committed to, in terms of giving. Don't we have to do that at times with brothers and sisters in Christ we're ministering to? We do that even with our own children at times as we say, look, we're committed to these kind of things, and you need to, you need to come on and, and have your life adjusted so that you are living out what you say you are committed to. You know, we had those kind of chats with our children at times, we tried to build in them a sense of identity with the family. We would say to them, hey, we're Guthrie's. We don't do things like that. And we would say, you know, we've always taught you to be others-focused, you know, as, as you're growing up, to be focused on others more than you're focused on yourself. The pattern that you have going right here, guys, in this is very self-centered. Come on. Come on. Let's, let's live the way that we know we need to live as Guthrie's. We do the same thing in, in the church uh, with brothers and sisters, and what Paul is doing here is he's saying, look, you guys are keen Christians, and, and you have 
things that are being manifested in your life that are manifesting real spiritual fruit, now let your giving kind of come along and, and join those other manifestations in showing where you are spiritually. That's not an inappropriate thing to call people to and challenge people to, not in a way that is manipulating, but in a way that is, is just calling people to live out what they're really, what they're really committed to. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace demonstrated by our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he became poor for your sake, so that by his poverty you might become rich. In other words, we have a pattern in the Lord himself of pouring out resources and life in, for the sake of other people being built up and, and uh, you know, made stronger because of giving. So by his poverty, by his incarnate kind of embracing of a very humble life, pouring himself all the way out to death, then what you have is the transformation of a situation out of this impoverishment to being strengthened and being uh, rich. So in challenging the Corinthians to follow this pattern of life where they're manifesting the grace of God, he points to the Macedonians first and said, hey, we see this grace manifested in them. Now, think about the Lord Jesus himself, the, the ultimate paradigm of this pouring yourself out and giving in a way that impoverishes you so that others might be benefited. That's what you see in the Lord Jesus himself. So the, so the pattern is there at the foundation of the faith. I, I love that passage in Philippians. I keep living in Philippians and Hebrews, you know, out of 2 Corinthians. But I love the passage you see there in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's paradigmatic. And the, the statement that he says there that Jesus who, um, even though he was in the form of God, and I think he's talking there in that passage about the manifestation of the glory of God in the heavenly realm. Even though Jesus was in that position, highest position in the universe, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a what? A servant or a slave, which was the lowest place in that culture, a shameful place to be in that culture. He did not consider that preeminent position as something to be demanded because of who he was. It's kind of a paraphrase of what it's saying there, but there's a lot of study that's been done uh, recently on that, that term there, something to be grasped, your, your translations say. But what it's talking about is Jesus did not demand the rights of who he was. Instead, he left that position, emptied himself in a way that resulted in him serving all the way to the point of death. He pulled, poured himself out, gave everything in order to follow God in obedience all the way to the extremity of death. And so Paul is saying here that that pattern that we see of Jesus who became poor that others might become rich, he's applying that then to the financial situation. He said, look, this is a paradigm that is just a basic Christian principle. We, we give ourselves, we pour ourselves out in terms of our financial resources, not to impoverish us, that's not the goal, but it's so that others can be benefited and be helped and be enriched in the situation. So what he's doing is he's calling the Corinthians to step up to the plate and be engaged in his mission in a way that is manifesting the grace of God so that 
other people can benefit as the gospel is spread throughout the Mediterranean world. So it's about mission. It's foundationally about lordship, as we saw just a minute ago, of coming before Christ and saying, all I have, all I am is yours, completely relinquishing control of, of you know, who you are and what you have, bowing before the lordship of Christ, but then doing that with a joyful uh, vision for the advancement of the kingdom of God and the mission in the world. And that's exactly what is going on here um, as Paul challenges them to follow the pattern of the Macedonians and then the pattern of Christ, that it's a consistent pattern that you pour out in order that others can be benefited and helped. Now look at verse 10. Um, he says, I am giving my advice on the matter. Again, he's not speaking authoritatively or authoritarianly. He says, I'm giving my advice on the matter for this course of action is to your advantage. In other words, when you follow biblical patterns, it's actually going to be best for you too. It's for your advantage. After all, you are the ones who took the initiative beginning last year, not only in action, but also in wanting to do something. In other words, last year, Paul says, when I was with you and you committed to the collection, uh, you guys stood up and said, hey, this is something we want to be involved in. And so Paul says that um, this is not something that you just kind of followed through with as, you know, an action that needed to take place, but it really was manifesting your own desire Verse 11, now finish what you started in order that out of your resources, the completed task might be brought in line with the eager desire. In other words, you expressed this desire last year and said, hey, Paul, this is what we're passionate about. We want to help in the ministry to Jerusalem. We want to give. We want to be involved in this. And Paul says, okay, that was the desire that you expressed at that time. Now, with Titus coming back to you, Get with the program, put this in motion so that your actions are lining up with the desire that you expressed last year. One of the things that we have to do in ministry at times is we have to work with people and walking with them in discipleship and say, you know, these are, these are the principles that we've been learning about. These are the patterns that we see are biblical patterns. I know your heart. I know that you are excited about the things of God. How might that then manifest in certain patterns that would bring your life and your resources and your actions in line with what I know is your heart? I know your desire is to help with the things of God. How might your discipleship now line up in a way that you, you act on it? Okay? So he's challenging them to, in other words, get with the program and bring their actions in line with their commitments and their desires and their heart. All right, very briefly, um, look at verse 12 again. For since this eager desire exists, the gift, rather than being judged efficient due to limited resources, is deemed acceptable on the basis of what is available. In other words, uh, it's not about the amount. It's about as God's grace is manifested in the use of your resources and your financial gifts and that kind of thing, it's, it's judged acceptable on the basis of you following through and using the resources you have in accordance with the call of God and the mission of God. 
In other words, Paul is saying, look, I'm not going to give you an amount here and say, well, if you've done that, then that, that's sufficient. He's saying that uh, what I'm challenging you to do is to bring your resources in line with your commitments, with the things that um, I know that you're passionate about in terms of the mission, and I want you to kind of get with the program here. Look, look at verses 13 through 15, and we're going to push the pause button and talk about some of the principles here together. So I don't mean to offer others relief by burdening you. Rather, it is a matter of equality. This is how equality works. At present, your oversupply can be used to meet their shortfall so that at some point in the future, their oversupply might be used to address your shortfall As it is written, the person who had much didn't have too much, and the person who had little didn't have too little. So he caps it off by reinforcing the principle here with with this biblical passage um, from the Old Testament. So what he's saying is, um, I'm not challenging you to get with the program here in order to burden you. I'm not saying because you Corinthians are wealthy and have all of these resources, which they did, that now the goal is to impoverish you so that other people can have lots of resources in other parts of the world. He said, no, what we're trying to do is work out a dynamic in the body of Christ so that spiritually when people are walking with God and they're where they need to be with God, as they have abundant resources because of the desire of their hearts, those resources naturally flow to the mission of God in the world. And those resources then meet needs that are out there in the world, and it becomes more of an equality in the sense that everybody is having their their needs met through these resources that have have been provided by God. And he says, hey, there may be a time in the future when those tables are turned, and you're at a place where you have needs, there are gaps financially that God will use other parts of the body of Christ to flow resources into the need at that point. Now, we, we've just rushed through this terribly, and it's completely inadequate what we've just tried to do with these first 15 verses. But what would you say are some of the principles already that stick out here in terms of, of what Paul is challenging them to and the nature of giving and how we think about financial resources in the ministry of the church? What are, you know, this is a specific moment for Paul. This is a specific, specific moment in him dealing with the Corinthians But what are some some kind of inherent principles here that we can grab hold of as we think about interfacing with those in our ministries and in the church to help them think biblically and live biblically in terms of dealing with resources? What what would be some examples? Okay, brother, right here. To commit our hearts first to the Lord before we commit our pockets. Say that one more time. I'm saying uh, the principle is to give our hearts first to the Lord before we give from our pockets. Okay. All right. So, again, foundationally, it's a discipleship issue. It's not a condition of the pocket. First of all, it's a condition of the heart, right? Okay. What else? We're, We're... Sounds a little bit like God's a socialist <laughs> in the last couple of verses. Thank you very much for that helpful comment. Uh, <laughs> just to okay. open that kind of warm. Yeah, you say it sounds so. So let me ask you this: How is no? Keep the mic. How, how is this different from socialism? 
That's a serious question. It's not forced. It's not compelled. He's not, he's not making a mandatory requirement of them. In fact, notice in this passage what, what he does is he refrains from demanding anything. He's appealing to them. And he's saying that, the, that the, the keen example that the Macedonians give is that they did so voluntarily, and they did so out of joy. So right giving, biblical giving, is something, and we're going to see this in chapter 9 as well, by the way, that is manifesting the work of the grace of God in people's lives, and it, it's, it's ending in joy, not a sense of restriction and impoverishment. Does that make sense? So do you repent of your statement? No, I'm just kidding. I'm teasing you. No, no, you're right. It does sound like him vying for equality. But, but here's, here's the practical thing about that. I, I mentioned, you know, going to the church in uh, China as an example. Uh, another, I mentioned my brother in Nazareth, the, the Arab brother who's Baptist pastor in Nazareth. These guys are so joyful. And they have so little in terms of, of material wealth. That's challenging to me, and, and, and it should tug on my heart in a way, not that I feel like, oh, I need to become poor, but, but it should tug on my heart in a way that I should say, look, out, out of the wealth that I have, really, comparatively, I want resources to be flowing into a situation like that to help meet those needs, and that's what Paul is saying, is when you evaluate the situation, don't just think of yourself as a have and them as a have not. Think of us all as haves under the grace of God, that God has provided these resources that I have for a reason so that they can flow to meet needs in other parts of the body and the mission can be accomplished because the resources are being spread around. I asked Craig Blumberg, who's going to be here next year, he, he's got a brilliant book called Neither Poverty Nor Riches, I think is the name of the title, the title of the book. It's a brilliant book. And uh, when Craig was writing that book, I didn't know he was writing the book, and I, I saw him at a meeting. I said, Craig, so uh, tell me what you're writing right now. And he told me about the book. And I said, so what's your conclusion? Um, you know, as you've studied this biblical theology, um, and he said, well, he smiled, and he said, well, I think most of the American church is sinning against God, was his response. And what he means by that is so much of our wealth and our resources are spent on ourselves rather than really thinking broadly about meeting the needs of, of other people, you know, in the world. And that's convicting to me, so that's, let's move on. <laughs> what, other, uh, what other principles do you see here? Just one or two, and we'll come back and we'll be talking about some of these things more um, after lunch. But we need to break for lunch here in just a minute, but just one or two other principles. Yes, sister. I think I've noticed um, an aspect where you're supposed to follow through on your commitment if you have made a pledge uh, to do something. I think this is also popular in our churches where people make pledges to do something and they don't follow through on it. Yeah, there's an integrity issue, isn't there? Yeah. And, and I don't think that what Paul, you know, what that speaks to is Paul's not looking for here kind of knee-jerk emotional reactions. He's looking at patterns of life that are lived out in integrity. And so uh, they had made a commitment to this as a community, and he's wanting them with integrity to follow through with the commitments that they made. I, I spoke about my relationship with my dad and how my dad was such a person of integrity and taught me that your word is your bond and, and that kind of thing. Paul is saying, 
that, you know, that's, that's a basic Christian principle that we are true to our words. You think about Psalm 15, Psalm 25, that, that what it means to be God's person is to, is to be consistent with your words and, and to follow through with the commitments that you've made. So that's a, that's a, great, um, a great thought there. One more before we turn. I think the brother up here had uh, one more before we turn to lunch. I relieved the comments from the side that felt so far before lunch. Okay. And we will, if you have others, we'll come back after lunch and kind of pull some more things together. But yes. Um, looking at the Macedonians, you get a sense of giving generously from what you do have instead of focusing on what you don't. And I was just thinking that giving doesn't necessarily have to be financial. I've met some people that don't have finances, but they'll then give time. They'll, they'll serve the community in some way. So there's that sort of sense of, of generosity in what you do have. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a very good point. Um, since Paul is talking here about the fact of them giving themselves, first of all, to the Lord and to us and to the mission, that's obviously going to manifest in different ways. It, for some people, they may have a lot of like money, financial resources that they're giving uh, there may be others that they, they don't have the financial resources, so they may participate a little bit in financial giving, but they just pour themselves out for the ministry and in, in serving other people. Um, and they're, they're just good at the grace of God manifesting in, in that as well. So you're right. We don't want to just make this about, you know, financial giving in that sense, as that's, that's the key <laughs> kind of indicator of how you're doing spiritually. That's not what Paul is saying. Um, but, but your finances are manifesting um, something about where you are spiritually. And he's saying, so whether you're in an impoverished situation or you have a lot of resources, the way that your resources are being dealt with and the way that they're being contributed to things is, is saying something about where you are you know, spiritually. So that's what he's trying to get them to grapple with. All right, let's have a, let's have a word of prayer for lunch, and we're going to go have lunch. We'll come back and, uh, again, apologize for rapidly going through that section so quickly. Um, but hopefully we'll, we'll get the big picture of what's going on here in these two chapters and kind of bring that around to some keen principles um, as we move toward wrapping up the day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you very much for your mercy to us. Uh, Lord, thank you, thank you that um, the, the principles of your word are so rich, uh, they're so encouraging, they're not trying to draw us into some form of legalism that restricts life, that reduces life, but Lord, uh, you're calling us to a radical form of life commitment that lays everything at the feet of Jesus, that does everything out of a passion for the mission of the church and the advancement of the kingdom in the world. And I pray that in our own lives, that, Lord, we would really come to that place of submission in a fresh way as we look at these passages. And, Lord, that you would get us to a place that we could minister and model that to others in our ministries so that uh, it really is a lordship issue. They are learning more and more how to follow Jesus into a, a life of pouring oneself out for others. And that, Lord, you would really bring glory to yourself through this and that you would advance the kingdom in the world as we, uh, as a church, learn to use our resources really well for the cause of the kingdom. Lord, we thank you for food to eat. We thank you for the uh, opportunity to be around the table with one another as brothers and sisters. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go to lunch.